Father, would your kingdom come and your will be done in this moment, in this space, as we lift our eyes to you. May we see you afresh. May we encounter your goodness and revel in your faithfulness because you are a good God. You are a good God. So come right now, fill this place with your presence and move our hearts towards you. <clears throat> we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Psalm 69? Turning to Psalm 69 and just dropping in in a few verses which we're going to use to bring us back to a place of worship. We're going to look at verse 30 to 32. And it says, I praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. <clears throat> this psalm is a psalm of David, and the words that we read are just one section within a very interesting and very powerful psalm. And as David pens these words for us that we are focusing on today, he describes within them his actions in worship. The opening line, I will praise the name of God with a song, very much positions this text as a description of David's approach to worship, how he is worshiping, what he is doing in this moment of worship. And as we read this tiny snippet of David's overall expression, we note that David specifically describes to us his worshiping of God in a song. He's therefore talking to us here about expressed worship. And that's quite important for us to identify because when it comes to talking about worship, we have to be careful to talk out that for the Christian, there are two approaches to worship. There is worship the event and there is worship the lifestyle. Worship the event is when we intentionally engage ourselves, we engage who we are and we engage what we have and the activity and the task of bringing worship to God within a moment and within a circumstance, it is when we express verbally and vocally our act of worship and adoration to Him. However, worship the lifestyle is when we live our lives in such a way that everything that we do our approach, our attitudes, our conduct, our interactions, our speech, even our very ethos in life, everything is lived and breathed in such a way that it honors Him, and it brings glory to Him, and it brings praise to Him. Worship the lifestyle is about just living our every day as an act of worship to Him. And while we call out that there are two approaches, the argument really is that you can't have one without the other and one flows out of the other and fuels the other and round and round it goes. But there are clear areas of overlap between worship the lifestyle and worship the event. And what we have to recognize is that the text that we're looking at this morning is one that specifically describes to us worship the event. It's about expressed worship. And this then is an important text for us to land on within our gathered moment because a huge part of what we do in our gatherings 
is worship the event. Every week, we take time intentionally and we make room intentionally for expressed worship and we make no apologies for doing so. A huge focus of what we do when we meet, a significant portion of our time within our gatherings is given over to loving upon God and loving upon the God who first loved us and allowing that expressed worship to lead us into his enthroned presence. On top of that, the, the call that God has given to us as a people this year is to sing. Single barren woman is the call that he's given us. We have to sing out of our prophetic expectation instead of our present experience. So with all of that in mind, scriptures like this one that specifically describe an approach to expressed worship become important for us to look at and important for us to spend a bit of time on. Now, what is interesting about these sentences that we've pulled out of Psalm 69 is that they present the method and the approach to worship, but they also call out the results of that approach and method. And the results are seen on two levels. They're seen on a personal level and they're seen on a spiritual level. And the results on a personal level are called out in verse 32, where it says, when the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. Samus says, when the humble see it. So the obvious question that we come to is, well, what is the it? What is the it that he is referring to? What is the it that the humble see? And the it is this expression and approach to worship that he's calling out within these verses. He says, when the humble see it, when the humble experience it, when the humble embody it, when they embrace it, when they engage in this act of worship, it causes them to be glad, he says. But actually, more than just a state of happiness and inner contentment being experienced, he then takes it a step further and he says, those who seek God in this way, let their hearts revive. The Passion Translation that I've been dipping in and out of quite a bit recently says this, all those who seek you will see God do this for them and they'll overflow with gladness. Let this revive your hearts, all you lovers of God. According to David, in embodying this approach to worship, there is a revival experience that is found in the heart. The innermost being is revived, it is renewed, it is refreshed, it is restored. There comes with this worship stance that he's calling out for us, there comes an inner strength and there comes an inner transformation that cannot be found anywhere else and it cannot be found in anything else. Something very spiritual, something very supernatural, something very definitive and transformative begins to take place and it takes place in a deeper place, the inner place. There's an outward dimension to this, absolutely. Gladness is found and gladness is seen, but its origin is actually deeper and purer than that. It's taking place inside of us. Something is happening within that can then be visibly seen and is then tangibly experienced. And all of that is found in a stance of worship. All of this, the scripture says, is found in embracing expressed worship, this spiritual, supernatural revival of the soul, we're told by the Bible, is described as taking place within an expression of worship. And this challenges a little bit, because clearly then there is a spiritual dynamic to expressed worship. 
And if we believe that and if we agree with that, then what does that mean for our times of corporate together worship? I think that perhaps it means that we have to begin to redefine the way that we view express worship within our gathered moments. This isn't a moment when we get together for a sing-song every week. Neither can this be viewed as singing some songs in order to fill a space until we get to the good stuff, the preaching of the Word. Neither can it be viewed as a box-ticking experience. God says we have to sing, so we sum some songs, tick the box, carry on. We actually have to be grasped by the truth that we're called to grasp hold of, the truth that is presented here and echoed in other places in Scripture. We have to come to terms with the facts and wrestle with this and sit with this and unpack this truth that actually when we express worship together, there is a spiritual dimension to this very natural function. And the spiritual dimension is not attached to singing. It's not the act of singing that brings supernatural change. It's when the singing is used within the context of worship. It's not the act of just singing a song. It's when that singing action is used within the context of worship. When we express worship, spiritual stuff begins to happen. And the spiritual stuff happens on a very deep and very personal level. And it happens on that deep personal level when we couple the right mindset and the right stance to the activity that we're engaging in. It's when we come to worship with the right heart and the right mind and the right stance and the right activity. That's when we begin to see revival and restoration and refreshing and peace and gladness and joy beginning to invade and flood the innermost being. It floods the innermost being in a moment of worship that couples the soul and the spirit with the physical, bodily action of sung praise. When the trinity of who we are, body, soul, and spirit, is engaged in the worship of the trinity of who He is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's when spiritual stuff begins to happen. When the trinity of humanity is caught in the pursuit of the trinity of divinity, heaven moves. Heaven invades the earth. There is power in sung worship. When we begin to sing, spiritual stuff begins to happen. Now, does embracing this and saying amen to this truth involve us bringing a bit of a shift in mindset and attitude? I think it does. Because we often think that the moments in our gatherings and services when the spiritual stuff happens, well, that's at ministry times. Or that's during the preaching of the Word. Or that's when someone on the stage invokes the welcome with, come Holy Spirit. That's when spiritual stuff begins to happen. And do you know what? All that we've just mentioned is 100% true. These things do carry spiritual dynamics and they do facilitate the movement and the ministry of God. But what if we began to recognize that from the first note played and the first word sung, from the first engaged expression of the heart in reverent adoration towards him, heaven breaks in and Holy Spirit breaks out. What is taking place at the beginning of our services? What has been led by our team week in and week out? It's not gospel karaoke. It's not Christian entertainment. It's holy. It's ushering 
and stewarding the presence of God, it carries with it incredible spiritual dynamic that when we step into it and when we intentionally embrace it, it has the potential to bring spiritual revival to our souls. And if we can recognize that, if we can begin to see that, does that shift our attention? Does that maybe suggest that we need to approach it with some respect? What is happening is holy. What is happening is ushering in the very presence of God. And if we begin to come with a respect for that, then does that maybe suggest that we should set our alarm clocks a bit early and actually turn up in time to be part of it? Out of a respect for it. Out of a respect for what takes place within it. And I know that we all function to different time clocks and time zones. But what if we began to set our sights on the culture of heaven and recognize from the first note sung and the first expression of an engaged heart, spiritual begins to happen. We're hosting him. We ask him to come and move amongst us. Sometimes we don't have enough respect to turn up in time to host him. Maybe we need to think about that. Why is there a spiritual dynamic within express worship? Well, the psalmist tells us that he's enthroned in the praises of his people. In worship, God is enthroned in our hearts. In our corporate moments, he's enthroned within our gathering. Because worship places him in a position of sovereignty and it places him in a position of honor because worship unites us all. It brings all of our focus and the focus of the entire room and the entire moment, it brings it firmly upon him and it places it firmly upon who he is, which leads nicely to the second result of this expressed worship. Firstly, results are seen on a personal level as spiritual stuff begins to take place within our souls, but also results are seen on a profoundly spiritual level and they are seen in spiritual places. Because verse 31 tells us that this expression of worship pleases the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. Now, we'll dig into that statement in a bit more depth in a moment, but for now, what we notice is that this expression of worship that the psalmist is advocating is one that pleases God. It brings pleasure to him. And therefore, that expression of worship must bring with it a powerful spiritual dynamic because when God is pleased, God is present. Now, we don't go too far with that in the sense of when we don't sense His presence, that must mean that He's not pleased with us. That's not what we're saying. But what we do see is that in Scripture, in moments where there is a distinct calling out of His pleasure, that is coupled with a marked manifestation of His presence. Genesis 1, the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the deep. Heaven is on earth. And within that environment of his presence, there comes announcements of his pleasure. And he creates and he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. He's announcing his pleasure within this environment of his presence. Jesus, the word became flesh, the word that created the world, the word becomes flesh, means he's dwelling amongst us. He stands in the river Jordan to be baptized. And the heavens open and the spirit descends. Something of heaven is on the earth. And there comes the announcement, this is my son whom I love. Him I am pleased. There's an announcement of his pleasure. There's the manifestation of his presence. 
on the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory of God envelops them, the cloud of his glory, with the announcement, this is my son whom I love, listen to him, with him I am pleased. With the announcement of his pleasure comes the marked manifestation of his presence. So we understand that when we read something that we're told brings pleasure to him, then we understand that it brings with it the manifestation of his presence. Expressed worship cultivates the presence of God. When we worship, we construct a throne for him and he takes his place upon it. Our expressed worship, worship hosts his glory. It welcomes his splendor. It opens up the doors that the king of glory may come within a space and amidst a people. And when he shows up, spiritual stuff begins to happen, not just within the heart and the soul and in the deeper places of who we are, but into the environment that he comes, transformation comes with him. We have to understand that when we begin to express worship, we are stepping into something holy and something significant in our together moments. We construct a throne and he takes his place upon it. And in that moment, in spiritual places, there comes a shift. You have to grasp this. Do you know that every Sunday at 11 o'clock when we gather together and lift our voices, there comes a shift in the spiritual places over Glasgow. That in this moment, with all the stuff that may have been happening during the week in our community, but in a moment when God's people gather and begin to express who they are before the God that loves them and begin to worship him for who he is and begin to carry his name and call out his name and worship his name in that moment, there comes a shift in the spiritual places over Governor because the king of glory comes and he takes his place and with him he brings radical transformation and change. This is more than a sing-song and a gospel karaoke, folks. We're changing the spiritual climate in our city and in our nation and in our community. Every time we lift our voice, we push the, bar the darkness back and we welcome the King of Glory to come in. There is power in this. When the trinity of who we are, body, soul, and spirit become involved in worshiping the trinity of who he is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, glory happens. David calls out this expression of worship. It brings him pleasure. It brings change to the personal lives of individuals. It brings change to the spiritual climate. And the question that we ask then, well, what is this approach to worship? What is this stance that invokes his pleasure and moves the heart of God to reveal his presence? What is this expression that carries with it such spiritual and supernatural dynamics that it would change the very soul of an individual just by being part of it? It's called out to us in verse 13. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. The key phrase is, I will magnify him with thanksgiving. In fact, the key words are magnify and thanksgiving. Take the word magnify. The word magnify carries two definitions in the scripture. It means to make something appear greater than it actually is, as in a microscope or magnifying glass. But it also means to make something that seems small or insignificant seem as great as it really is, as in a telescope. So we have microscopic magnification and telescopic magnification. 
To fit that into the text, David says, I will magnify the Lord with thanksgiving. He's not saying, I'm going to make God seem bigger than he really is. But rather what he's saying is, I'm going to make God appear as big and as great as he truly is. David's approach to worship is to bring telescopic praise. It is to present the reality of God, to present the reality of how great God really and truly and magnificently is. And this is something we need to grasp this morning and something that perhaps we need to allow our souls to receive a revelation of all over again. See our God that we worship. He's great. Amen? Our God is great. He is a great, big, magnificent, all-powerful, awe-inspiring, awesome God. And the Scriptures never stop presenting the greatness of God. Psalm 147 says he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power his understanding is beyond measure. God is so great, so powerful that he is intricately interested in what we carry in our hearts and our souls, but yet at the same time, he orders the very structure of our existence and causes the created realm to function in accordance with his plan. He puts everything in place and in order. He is great in power. Romans 11 tells us, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul says, his wisdom is so deep and so rich that you can't actually search his judgments. There are no end to them. You, you can't get to the bottom of them. You, you can't outdo them. In fact, nobody could be his counselor. Nobody can give God advice because his wisdom is so magnificent. He is great in wisdom and understanding. Psalm 103 tells us, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The psalmist tells us he is so great in grace and mercy, that he does not treat us as our sins deserve. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. 
He is so great in compassion and love that He doesn't harbor His anger forever against us. He doesn't let His wrath burn against us, but from everlasting to everlasting. Though we may fade away, though the things of this world will fade away, His love never can. The God to whom we belong, He is a great God. He is magnificent and perfect in all of His ways. He is matchless in wonder and power. Who is like unto Him? No one. No one is like our God. And the Scriptures declare to us the goodness of God. The Scriptures allow us to see how great God really is. Without it, we would not fully grasp that. They allow us to see and to perceive and to understand the Scriptures. The Word of God is telescopic. They give us insight into His heart, a glimpse of His power, a glimpse of His understanding and His unparalleled beauty. Scripture makes God seem as great as He truly is. What a gift the Word of God is to us. And as if that wasn't enough, we're also told that, well, creation is telescopic. Romans says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen, been understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. It says there are qualities that are invisible for us to see, but yet we can perceive them and know them just by looking at the world around about us. The world presents to us, allows us to see the greatness of our God, how magnificent He truly is. Creation is telescopic. It reveals to us how magnificent God is. And David clearly got this. He clearly perceived this from looking around in the world because he wrote the words, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you've established a stronghold against your enemy to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the sun, the moon, and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You've made them rulers over the works of your hands. You've put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild and the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It was like when I look around and I see this world in which I live, It presents to me the majesty of God, the greatness of who He is. Creation is telescopic. And even though we have these gifts of Scripture and the created world that call out to us and reveal to us how great God really is, even though we have these things, Paul still prays in Ephesians that the eyes of our hearts would be opened to grasp the greatness of God. He prays that we would have telescopic hearts that can grasp and perceive how great God really is. Why why does he pray that? We've got the word. We have this world in which we live. And that's because even although we see the greatness of God presented to us in these things, all too easily we forget, don't we? I'm so blessed to live in a beautiful part of the country. And every day as I make the journey from the town where I live to the city and from the city back to the town where I live, there is this 
part of the journey that just opens up to the vista of the River Clyde with the Argyle Hills and the Dumbarton Rock that just totally fills the, the view and, and you look right down the river. It's stunningly beautiful. But you know, see, because I make that journey every single day, sometimes I fail to notice it. You come up, become desensitized to it. You kind of get used to it. It's only at times when someone else is in the car with me that maybe doesn't live in that area and we turn the corner and that view opens up and they're like, oh my goodness, look at that. And you're like, oh, yeah, you're right, look at it. And do you know what? Every day we live in the greatness of God. Every day in our lives, every day that we wake up and we have a day to face, we live in the greatness of God, but sometimes we can get so used to it that we fail to recognize it anymore. We can become desensitized to it. We can all too easily forget the greatness of God that is gifted towards us. And this is why David writes, praise the Lord, O my soul, all, his in, all my inmost being, praise his holy name, praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He forgives all sins. He heals all diseases. He redeems our life from the pit and crowns us with love and compassion. Forget not these things. In fact, in Psalm 77, he says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember the miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? He's like, I'm going to intentionally remind myself, I'm going to remember, I'm going to meditate on who he is and what he's done, that I will never lose sight of the greatness of God. All too often, we can forget how great our God really is. There are times when we need the eyes of our hearts opened afresh to see again and grasp again the greatness and the magnificence of his wonder and his power. We need to remind ourselves, don't we? We need to cause our hearts to remember his benefits, to intentionally meditate on all he's done. And surely the response to such a vision and such a perception has to be to then proclaim how great he is. That as we glimpse the greatness of our God, that we begin to live ourselves such telescopic lives that we feel and we think and we act in such a way that every fiber of our being reflects to those around about us the greatness of the God that we belong to. But that's worship the lifestyle. We're talking here about worship the event. And there is prescribed within this text a method of telescopic praise, a means of magnifying God, and that is with thanksgiving. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This is where expressed worship comes in. When we express thanksgiving to God from our hearts, we magnify him. And thanksgiving, therefore, is telescopic it's telescopic praise. Why? Well, it's understood in this. Those that give are greater than those that receive. Benefactors are greater than beneficiaries. The giver is greater than the receiver. The benefactor is greater than the beneficiary. And when we receive something, our immediate response to that is thanksgiving. When we express thanks, we acknowledge the giver and we actually acknowledge the greatness 
of the giver. When someone gives something to us and we say, thank you, we're acknowledging this great thing that I'm on the receiving end of, that has you at its source. It's come from you. It is because of you. When we thank God, we acknowledge him as the giver. And we acknowledge him and say this great thing, this healing, this miracle, this breakthrough, this peace, this revelation, this new day that I have to live and enjoy, this family, this provision, as you at its source, it's come from you. It's present in my life because of you. Thanksgiving acknowledges the greatness of God. It states in this situation, if I'm thanking you and acknowledging that it's come from you, then it's calling out that you are greater and you gave out of your great resources to me. Thanksgiving is telescopic. It reveals and shows how great God is. The problem is, we actually live in a microscopic world. We live in a world that takes humanity with its flaws and its sin and its broken human nature and makes it seem bigger than it really truly is. Our culture right now is all about glorifying the self, glorifying your own deeds and your own ways. You can be what you want to be, you can do what you want to do, and we'll all say it's great. Humanity and the society that's been built round about it is self-obsessed. And therefore, it downsizes God and it upsizes the self. But Christianity, Christianity takes that mindset and belief system and turns it round and teaches us that actually we have to humble the self and magnify him. In fact, if we were to go the full extent, the scripture says, we need to die to self in order to fully magnify him. We are to downsize the self and upsize God, but actually we can't upsize him because we're not about making him greater than he actually is. So we need to downsize the self and right-size him. Call out who he is and what he's like and acknowledge that with every motive and every action. And our faith, it teaches us to acknowledge God as the giver of everything. Everything that we have, according to the word of God, we are to treat everything that we have as a gift from him. That he is the giver of all things, the father of lights, as it were. And therefore, if we say that he is the giver of all things and everything that we have is because of him, then we don't just position him as great in our lives, but we position him as the greatest. And our faith equally then in response to that calls us to live a life of thanksgiving. A life that is constantly calling out what he's done and is constantly reminding ourselves of what he's done whilst at the same time stepping into and embracing what he is doing. We are to bring to him telescopic acts of worship that downsize us and right-size him. And the thing we have to grasp within those moments then is that if telescopic worship is about downsizing us and right-sizing him, then it's not actually about what songs we like and don't like. It's not about whether we like the temple, whether we like the modern songs or the older songs, or whether we like repetition or whether we don't, because it's not actually about us. We are to downsize us and we are to right-size him. The question should be, does this call out the greatness of God? Does this point to who he is and what he's like? Does this celebrate him? 
We're to bring these telescopic acts of worship that call out his splendor. We're to step into acts of worship that enthrone him and see him take his place as the king of glory amongst us. That we bring the trinity of who we are, body, soul, and spirit, into the adoration of the trinity of who he is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and engage in him, step fully into the image in which we've been created. And as we honor him, he comes. And he takes his place upon his throne. This heart, this humble heart that downsizes the self and right-sizes him, this heart, according to the psalm, sees God. This humble heart experiences joy and gladness in the greatness of God. And this humble heart is one that God visits with his reviving power to bring transformation. Because this heart pleases God more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. Psalm 50, God tells us this. With this I close. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle in a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you because the world is mine and all that's in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble and I'll deliver you and you will honor me. God's problem, according to the psalm, is that people are coming before him bringing offerings but failing to recognize his greatness. So he reminds them of his greatness. He's like, I own the cattle on a thousand hills, guys. If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you because see this world that you live in, actually, it's my gaff. So he tells them they fail to recognize that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, every beast of the field. They, they bring their offering to him as though they are enriching him and bringing it. They view this as them giving and God receiving. And they're like, here you go, God. Here's my gift for you that makes it better for you. But in doing so, they are actually upsizing themselves. And they're believing that they are making God happier with what they are resourcing him with. And that mindset then downsizes him. In fact, the whole attitude that they have is putting themselves in the position of greatness and stripping God entirely of his. And God says, I take no pleasure in that. But here's what I do take pleasure in. Bring before me your thank offerings. Bring thanksgiving. Come and offer that which calls out greatness. Come and Offer that which says, see that which I have, that's you at the source. It's not about what I am bringing to you, it's about what you have done and who you are. Come and bring your thanksgiving. Come and bring telescopic praise. Church, we're in a place where God is calling us to sing, to explore worship. And these moments that we gather aren't space-filling moments. These moments when we sing aren't about gospel karaoke and Christian entertainment. We are hosting the manifest presence and glory of God. We are coming and for a moment we are serving our community, our city, and our nation.
by seeing change in spiritual places, by constructing a throne that sees the King of glory come and take his place amongst us, that sees the whole spiritual climate and atmosphere over this area transform. We are bringing heaven to earth. This is holy. But it's not about us. It has to be all about him. This worship that sees heaven touch the earth is when we bring the trinity of who we are, body, soul, and spirit, and we pour it all out and engage every bit of it in the adoration of the trinity of who he is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's when we come and we call out with thanksgiving who he is and what he's done is when we bring our telescopic acts of worship. It builds his throne. I was reminded of this as I was thinking of this in a book I once read a number of years ago. I think it was The God Chasers by Tommy Tenney. And in it, he tells this, it's a really bad illustration that he uses, but he tells this story of a friend of his who has a very severe health condition fluid retention, all this kind of stuff, and he is morbidly obese, very overweight. And he says when his friend comes into an environment, the first thing that he has to do is to look around to see, is there a seat strong enough to hold me? And if there is, he'll stay, and if there isn't, he'll make his excuses and go. An illustration that Tommy Tenney was bringing there is that our God is the King of glory, God, that the weightiness of who he is and when he, when he comes and responds to his people he looks to see is there that which can host me can hold my presence and if there is then he takes up habitation if there's not it becomes a visitation the only thing that hosts his presence is worship he's enthroned in the praises of his people so when we come and we worship him, we construct a throne strong enough to host him. And he comes and he takes his place and spiritual stuff begins to happen. Heaven breaks out. Church, how about this morning we, we build a throne for him together? How about this morning we engage all that we are, body, soul, and spirit, in the worship of all that He is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And let's worship in such a way that for the next half hour or however long we spend in this, 15 minutes, half hour, whatever, hell shakes over Govan Hill because the King of glory has arrived. That for a moment, the demons tremble because angels arrive, because he is amongst us, because the people of God have risen up and they're saying there's a line inside of these lungs and we're going to let it out in worship and adoration of him. How about for a moment, we downsize the self and we right-size him. He's great. He's the source of everything. Would you stand with me for a moment?